The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Okay, a couple of announcements. There's no Bible class this Tuesday night. Remember that. That's day after tomorrow. No Bible class, okay? I'll be headed to Memphis in the morning. Class will resume, though, on Thursday night. I've always arranged my trips to leave Monday, come back Wednesday, or leave Wednesday and come back Friday. And when I was at Preston City, sometimes we would just waffle Wednesday night. We'd move it to Tuesday night if we needed to. But with Tuesday night and Thursday night the same week, it's uh, it's gets a little rugged sometimes, so we just have to uh, cancel class and you have to pay attention to the calendar. Okay, evangelism workshop on Saturday, August the 6th at 10 a.m. That'll last about an hour and a half. And then we will announce the timing for uh, viewing the uh, place that we're looking at out on the Beltway. We don't have a set time yet, but we should have that by Thursday night. Then on Sunday night, August the 7th, two weeks from tonight, there will be a congregational meeting. Even if you're not a member, you're invited to attend and to participate. Uh, If you consider yourself a regular attender, regularly involved, then uh, you can be a part of that discussion. And then we will have a vote on uh, what we're going to do. Then on the second Sunday of August, that's also Communion Sunday, we're going to launch our new prep school material and launch a new teen class that will meet on Sunday nights, and Ike Spiker will be teaching that class. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, we need to make sure that we are prepared to study the Word of God. Scripture teaches that whenever we commit sin, whether it's mental attitude sin, a sin of the tongue, or personal sins, that at that point we are out of fellowship with God. We don't lose our salvation but we have broken that relationship, that rapport, that must be restored. It's only restored, Scripture says, if we admit or acknowledge our sin to Him in the privacy of our priesthood. We simply 
form words in thought alone and admit to whatever it is that we have done. And at that instant, God in his faithfulness, because we have already put our faith alone in Christ alone, forgives us, cleanses us from all unrighteousness, even those sins we have forgotten about or didn't realize were sins, and we are restored to fellowship. We recover the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit as he works to produce sanctification or spiritual growth in our lives so that we can also understand the Word. He stores it in our soul for future application. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the privilege and opportunity to study your word this evening. That as our Lord said, it is your word that sets us free. It is your word that sanctifies us. And that it is your word that is absolute truth. And now, Father, as we come to study the absolute truth of your word, may we have a a better understanding of the absolute truth of our Savior who is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. Father, the psalmist said that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and that it is through your word that we come to understand life as it is. It is through your light, the light of your word, that we see light. Now, Father, we pray that under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, we would understand the things that we study and that we would make them a part of our thinking and part of our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, then that's in the New Testament. Fourth book in the New Testament, the last of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. It comes right before the book of Acts. This evening, we're going to start a series that I've entitled, Foundation for Life. Our Lord taught a parable about a home builder in the middle of building one now. It has a certain relevance, but this is a story about two men who built different homes. One investigated the soil on which he laid his foundation, and it was sandy soil, but he went ahead and built the house and laid the foundation on sandy Soil and the other built his house on bedrock. Of course, when the storms of life came, it's the house that was built on shifting sands that fell apart because the shifting sands were unable to withstand the pressures, the tests of the real issues of life. The man who built his house on bedrock survived. The house survived. wasn't hurt or harmed or weakened by the storm. And this is a parable to teach the fact that we all have to make a decision about what we're building our lives on. Our lives are that analogous to the house. And what we build our house on is what we believe to be truth. Now, we all know there's all kinds of competing claims to truth today. But there has to be a way to evaluate those truth claims and to know what is truth. Not what's true for you or what's true for me, not what works for you or what makes you happy, but what is absolutely true, whether you feel like it's true, want it to be true, whether it uh, 
makes you happy or sad, it is truth because it is that which conforms to the nature of reality. That's a basic definition and idea of truth. So I want to start this series by examining our foundation and asking you the question, what's your foundation? To do this, I want to go to one of the most famous conversations in all of Scripture, and that's in John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verse 37. In fact, this is the last conversation the Lord Jesus Christ had before he went to the cross. This conversation is part of his sixth trial. He went through six trials before he was sentenced by Pilate, turned over to the Jews, and they crucified him on the cross. As Pilate examines him in John 18, verse 37, Pilate says, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Jesus says the reason he was incarnate, or one of the reasons, was to bear witness to not a truth, not his truth, not Jewish truth versus Roman truth versus Greek truth versus Asian truth, but truth, the truth. The very statement that he makes presupposes an absolute overriding truth by which all claims can be measured. He said, For this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Of course, that implies that those who reject his voice are not of the truth, but are living in self-deception. And Pilate responds to him, and this statement by Pilate is just, it's lost in the, if you just look at the text. I mean, you have to have a sense of who this man is and his background and how he is just a typical product of first century Roman culture, just as so many people that we know today are typical products of 21st century American culture. And they're skeptical and they've heard all kinds of truth claims and they've heard so many people make claims that aren't backed up, whether they're claims about uh, having greater sex appeal because of your toothpaste or claims related to the cleansing uh, ability of your dishwashing soap or whether they're claims of politicians or claims of, of somebody who come, came by and knocked on your door with a track. People are just skeptical. They don't believe that anybody can know truth anymore and that it's impossible to know truth and that all, the only thing you can do is find some, something within yourself, some truth within yourself that becomes the basis for living your life so that you can have some measure of happiness or uh, that at least it's true for you right now and so everything's okay and you feel good about it. And so Pilate responds to him and he says, truth, what's that? Just a flippant remark. Jesus says, everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate just says, truth, what's that? And then he goes out to the Jews outside the courtroom and he says, I find no fault in him. Nevertheless, he still turned Jesus over to the Jews, but that gets ahead of our story. What I want to focus on is this one interchange between Jesus and Pilate. And actually there's a third group. They're not on the scene at this conversation. They're just outside, and that's the Jews. So you actually have four groups of people here 
who represent four different approaches to this concept of truth, four different approaches to life, meaning, and happiness. We have, on the one hand, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is, as I said earlier, the typical product of Greco-Roman culture, and he is the skeptic. He doubts that you can know truth, that there is even such a thing as an absolute truth. And then you have the two religious groups. Pontius Pilate represents what we would call today the secular skeptic. But the Jews represent all other religious groups. Now, you may say, well, they're not the same as a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim, perhaps. But nevertheless, these two groups of Jews represent all other religions in the world except for biblical Christianity. Now, I want you to understand that when I talk about religion, I'm not talking about biblical Christianity. Let's get an important definition down. Religion is man trying to gain God's approval, God's blessing, God's approbation by his own works. It's man thinking that if I engage in certain rituals or if I have a certain moral rectitude, if I live a good life, then God is going to bless me in whatever heaven you believe in, whether it's a paradise or a nirvana or whatever it may be, that you will arrive there after death simply because you've been a relatively good person. And that concept underscores every religious system in the world other than biblical Christianity. And this was evident among these two groups with the Jews. The Sadducees represent a more liberal form of religion. They weren't so sure there was anything supernatural. And the Pharisees represented much more rigorous ethical group, the Jewish fundamentalists, as it were, that if, we're, uh, if we follow the Mosaic Law, not only the 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law, but if we follow all of the other thousands of regulations we've laid down in our tradition, that somehow that will meet God's approval and he will, he will save us. Over against those three groups, you have the claims of Jesus Christ, who, and you have to catch the irony of the whole scene here. Here's Pilate saying, truth, what's that? And he's saying that to the man who said that he is the truth. He embodies the truth. He is the eternal truth. He is, he claimed to be God. Now, there are those who claimed that he was just a good man or a prophet, but that's not why they crucified him. If he had only claimed to be a good man or a prophet, the Jews would never have crucified him. They had him there in front of Pilate because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the God of the Old Testament. He claimed to be full, undiminished deity. And the Jews clearly understood that. And because they rejected his claim to be God, they were going to punish him according to the law, which was death. It was a capital offense, but because they were a, a province of Roman Empire, they did not have the freedom under the law to execute for capital crime. So they had to go to the Roman authority. That's why they went before Pilate. And so here you have Pilate just skeptically questioning the existence of truth in the very face of the one who is the truth. Now, to understand how this sets us up for understanding the controversy between truth claims, I want to start with Pilate. Pilate 
the classic skeptic. Pilate represents the views of skeptics down through the ages who just don't want to accept the fact that there is some eternal truth that they must conform their thinking. He offers this dismissive remark, and it reveals that he's a pragmatic man. He is a, the administrator of the Roman province. He's the proconsul. He's the governor of Judea. It is his responsibility to, to administer the kingdom, and he just really doesn't care about getting distracted by religious claims for truth or philosophical argumentation. As a product of the Roman Empire, this is a man who's well-educated. He's familiar with the philosophers that have influenced Greco-Roman culture. He knows about the philosophers that preceded Socrates. He knows about Socrates. He knows about Plato. He knows about Aristotle. He knows about the Stoics and the Epicureans and the Sophists and all the different views. And by this time in history, most people in the Roman Empire had become skeptics. They had seen for 500 years various philosophical systems come and go, making claims to offer truth. And yet, as soon as one came on the scene, another would follow it that would demonstrate its inability to, its inability to handle the real issues of life, and you'd shift from one philosophy to another. And so by this time, they've played out all the philosophical investigation, and there doesn't seem to be anybody who can give an answer to the question, what is truth? So to understand Pilate a little bit, we have to understand the history of ideas that shaped this skepticism, because the skepticism that shaped Pilate in 30 A.D., is the same skepticism, there are the same ideas that have produced the skepticism in the 20th century and 21st century in the world today. And as we look back in ancient history and trace these ideas, what we're going to see is the same influences that each one of us have faced. So we'll go back, and we won't go back too far, we'll go back to simply Plato and Aristotle. Now to understand what a revolution occurred in Greece in the 5th century B.C., we must realize that prior to that time, in all of the ancient civilizations, whether it was the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Canaanites, all of these cultures were polytheistic. That means they worshipped numerous gods and goddesses. They were idol worshippers. They had deified the forces of nature. And as a result of that, they made man subservient to nature. And the end result of several thousand years of idolatry was that it produced vicious human cultures that were violent and destructive and offered people no hope. And it's fascinating to look at history, but it, roughly the 6th to 7th century B.C., there came a time when all of these idolatrous systems tended to wipe out and men started looking for solutions and for answers in another direction. This is when the Greek philosophers came on the scene. You have your pre-Socratic philosophers about the 6th century B.C. and then uh, as their thought developed and influenced, it sort of culminated in the person of Plato. And so you had two great philosophers, Plato 
and then his student, Aristotle. And this is just a picture on the screen that focuses on the two great philosophers. Plato's on the left, Aristotle is on the right. Aristotle was Plato's student, and Aristotle was, by the way, the tutor of Alexander the Great. But if you notice in the picture, it has Plato with his finger pointed upward, and Aristotle has his hand pointed downward. And this is to picture, by the way, this is from Raphael's famous painting, The School of the Prophets. And he is picturing the fact that for Plato, ultimate reality was in this upper realm of the ideas. But Aristotle came along and said, no, 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 that really doesn't answer the issues, answer the questions. The real answers are found in reality in the study of things in the created in the in nature itself. So Plato comes along and says that reality is above. It's not in the world that we see and experience with our senses. The material world for Plato is nothing more than a shadow, a reflection of these ultimate ideals. And he called those ultimate ideals forms. Later on, it's the Apostle Paul who comes along and says that Jesus Christ, although he existed in the form of God. See, he picks up that philosophical terminology to indicate that the ultimate reality, again, is Jesus Christ. And then for Plato, truth, therefore, is not discovered through the senses because we don't see things as they are. We simply see a shadow reflection Truth is not discovered through the senses, through empiricism, through the study of what we see, taste, touch, and feel. It's not discovered through scientific experimentation. It's discovered through unaided reason alone. And this is the contribution of the Greeks to human thought. Is they, after rejecting the gods and goddesses of polytheism, and after rejecting the idolatry that had dominated human history for centuries before, they rejected all gods and said man can find meaning and truth by himself on the basis of unaided reason. But Aristotle came along afterward. He said, no, it doesn't explain the issues. It doesn't explain why there's evil in the world. It doesn't explain why there's suffering. It doesn't explain why man exists and why man is different from all the other animals. It doesn't explain what's ultimately out there. He said reality isn't what's above. Reality is what's below. Reality is what you see. In other words, by studying the material world, which you can know directly, we can know truth. So you see they're opposing truth claims. One says you can only you can't really know things directly, you can only know their shadow, and you know it through reason. The other says, no, you can know things directly, you know it through your senses. Truth is discovered through the senses. Now, for most of us who've never studied a lot of philosophy or thought, this may be something that's going over your head a little bit, but it's important to understand because this same series of events occurred in modern history. Descartes was like Plato. He was a rationalist. came along and said, you can find truth or reason. But that was a bankrupt system, and he was followed by men like John Locke, who were empiricists following the path of Aristotle. And they said, no, 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 you've got it wrong. You can't come to truth through reason. You can come to it through, through experience, 
through empiricism. But then that fell apart. You had a man that came along in the late 1700s named David Hume, and Hume said, you can't know truth at all. You can't even be sure it's there. He was the skeptic. But see, man can't live as if there's no truth. See, as soon as something happens on the news, you see some horrible incident that occurs, you see, uh, hear the story of some father who has murdered his children, and you're just appalled, and you say, well, that's wrong. And then if he gets off, once again, you're offended. Your sense of absolutes is offended. You say, that's wrong. What have you just done? You've just used verbiage that indicates that you believe there's some sort of overarching absolute standard or truth. Whenever you use that word, you get in an argument with somebody, and you disagree with them, you say you're right or you're wrong. You say uh, you shouldn't do that, you ought not do that, or this ought to be this way. As soon as you use those words, should, ought, right, wrong, what are you implying? The very words that you use are implying that there is some overarching standard. Man can't live as if there's not a standard because the Scriptures say that God built that into each one of us. So Plato and Aristotle represent the ancient strand that sets up skepticism as we have gone through a modern strand that sets up skepticism. So we want to go back and understand this a little bit. Here's Plato down in the lower corner. And Plato used a very famous illustration about how we know things. It's called the cave, Plato's cave. Any of you ever studied basic philosophy? You're familiar with that. It's found in his famous work, The Republic. And he uses the cave as a way of illustrating how man only knows the shadows. Now, the background for this is something we all did when we were kids. Sometimes I don't think some of you were kids, but you all remember when you turned the lights off in your bedroom and you'd pull out a flashlight and you'd hold it up and, and you'd make figures with your fingers and you'd make a rabbit or a dog or a house and, and you'd cast a shadow up on the wall. And you'd look at that shadow and the shadow looked like a rabbit or the silhouette of a dog or a horse or whatever it was. And that's the background for understanding Plato's analogy here. You have man who's in this cave. The box represents the cave. And somewhere behind man, there's this light that is illuminating his knowledge, and it is casting a shadow on the wall. But all you can see are the shadows. You see, the, you see a horse or you see a dog, and this is a shadow of some ultimate reality, but you don't see that ideal reality. It's, it's hidden from you. It is actually outside the cave. And the problem with Greek philosophy at this point, with Plato's philosophy, is he couldn't really get to a direct knowledge or understanding of these ultimate ideals or ultimate forms because they weren't revealed to him from outside the cave. That was the problem. Man was stuck in the cave. He couldn't get outside to know if what he saw was anything close to what was true. And so Aristotle came along and pointed this out and said, you know, it's ultimately bankrupt because you can't know anything for sure. Now, this system was known as rationalism. So along came Aristotle. Aristotle also has a box. And that box represents creation. Because Aristotle's system is empiricism. And he's emphasizing the truth is that which is known through the senses, whether it's sight, sound, touch, 
taste, or smell. This is how we learn about the world around us. We can trust our senses. The problem is that the sense data is also limited. And somewhere there has to be something to put everything in motion, but we really don't have any direct knowledge of it. So Aristotle postulated something known as the unmoved mover or the prime mover. There's something got everything started in motion, but I don't really know what it is. But because there are all these things in existence that are in motion, there must be a prime mover, an initial mover, something or someone that put everything in motion, but he doesn't know what it is. And you see, this is an essential problem for Greek philosophy, and Aristotle is followed by the group known as the Sophists, who were the skeptics of the day. They didn't think you could know truth. They didn't think there was an overarching truth. They didn't think there was a universal truth that applied to everybody. Just everybody has to have their own truth, and whatever works for you is true for you, and that's okay. But see, people can't live like that. And that system would break down, and they would be replaced by the Epicureans, and they're replaced by the Stoics. And then as time goes on, people just give up on being able to find some overarching truth. Well, if you don't have an overarching truth, you can't really find meaning and purpose to life. And if there's no meaning or purpose to life, then life is meaningless and purposeless, and you're just nothing more than a cosmic accident. You're just something that happened, and there's really nothing more distinct or significant about your life than the life of a rabbit or a lizard or a rock. Go have a happy life. See, that's where human philosophy ended. It was bankrupt. It couldn't provide people with meaning and happiness in life. And at the same time that the Greeks are wrestling with these ultimate ideas, something's happening over in Israel. See, the answer was here. It had been revealed to the Jews by God, but the Jews had rejected it, and they had substituted the idolatrous religion that the Greeks were now at the position of rejecting. So because the Jews had fallen into idolatry, God punished them and took them out of the land, the land that he had promised them, the land of Canaan. And he said that he would punish them for 70 years. They would be destroyed by their enemies. They would be removed from the land. And after 70 years, God would bring them back to the land. This occurred in 536 B.C. when the first group of Jews returned from Babylon. And this first group of Jews came under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And they returned, uh, excuse me, with the leadership of Ezra. And they returned to the land. And when they returned to the land, several things happened over the next hundred years. They developed two different religious parties, two different political religious parties. The first was known as the Sadducees, and the second is known as the Pharisees. The Sadducees were sort of the liberal group. The Sadducees were the group that thought that there really wasn't anything supernatural that God, there wasn't an afterlife, that angels didn't exist, there, there's no resurrection, that religion is fine and good, but, you know, we have to, after all, use our reason and be thinking individuals. And this is uh, their position. They represent the group of people down through the age, ages who hold on to a form 
of religion. They, they, they like God talk. You know people like this. They like God talk. They talk about bless you. They say, may God bless you. They go to church on Sunday, nod to God every now and then, or they go to synagogue or temple, whatever. And every now and then they pick up a book about spirituality and, and read it, and it makes them feel comfortable. It sort of takes the edge off their guilt. But they don't really give themselves to a belief in God. It's just something to make their life a little more comfortable and to make them feel as if they have some level of purpose and meaning. They can't live like the skeptic or the atheist because then you're left with just a meaningless, hopeless, despairing life. So they leap into God, but they don't really believe that God has ever really truly spoken to man. That's the Sadducees. That's their concept of truth. And that foundation would fall apart. See, the foundation of the Greek thought fell apart and left people with skepticism. The foundation of let's say, religious liberalism, which has affected all of the major religions, with Judaism, Islam, Christianity, all have been affected by the uh, liberalism of modern philosophy. But then you have the group known as the Pharisees, and these were the Jewish fundamentalists. They were the rigorous upholders of the Mosaic Law. These are the ones that wanted everybody to make sure that they did everything in their life exactly and precisely according to the Mosaic Law so that God wouldn't punish them again and kick them out of the land. And so they were also trying to earn God's favor by how many times a day they prayed and how many times a day they went to the temple, and they were trying to get brownie points with God. Once again, that didn't work. It was a truth system that ultimately fell apart. It couldn't bear the weight of the issues of life. And it is into this context that Jesus comes, who is the eternal God. Scripture says that He is the one who created the heavens and the earth. And the God of the Bible is a distinct God from all these other gods or the prime movers or the ideals or the forms. The God of the Bible is distinct from everything else. He is the Creator God. Genesis 1 begins, in the beginning, God. And this is one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture because the first phrase indicates that there is a beginning, but that God existed before the beginning. He is eternal. He is not finite. It says, in the beginning, God. That very statement rejects all polytheism, that is a belief in many gods, and it rejects the concept of atheism, which is the view that there is no God. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. And this indicates that God is distinct from the universe. He is not in the universe, which is the view of a uh, called panentheism, and that he is not identified with the universe or with nature, and that's a view called pantheism. So the very first verse of the Bible separates and distinguishes biblical teaching from every other religious system in the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he said, Let us make man. 
Now that us indicates that there's a plurality in the Godhead. That there is not just one person in the unity of God, but that there are more than one uh, persons in the unity of God. And later revelation demonstrates that there were three persons in the Godhead. It's clear from numerous passages in the Old Testament. There's the Father, there is the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. And it is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who is the one who was the actual creator of the heavens and the earth. And as the creator, he is the one who established reality. He is the one who established the way things are. He is the one who established the laws that govern both the spiritual realm as well as the physical realm. And as such, he has the ability to communicate to us. Now, the other interesting thing about this, if you think about it, is that when God created man, he knew two things. He knew, first of all, that he was going to want to communicate to man. That meant that he created man in such a way that man could receive with certainty that communication. The man wasn't going to have to guess, well, does this come from God or not? Now, God created man so that he could know with certainty when God spoke to him. And that man could know him and have a relationship with him. The second thing we need to observe about God's creation of man is that when God created man, God in his omniscience, because he knows all things, knew that one day he was going to enter into humanity. So he created man and the human race to function in such a way that the eternal God of the universe could incarnate himself into the human race so that he could provide a salvation for man, so that he could come and speak truth to man so that man would have the ability to evaluate all these other so-called truth claims on the basis of the one overarching absolute truth. This is a background for understanding Jesus' conversation, probably the most famous conversation Jesus had with a Pharisee in John chapter 3. So turn with me to the third chapter of the Gospel of John. Now, I don't want to begin at the beginning of this conversation. I want to go to the end of the conversation, then we'll go back to the beginning. When Jesus goes through this conversation, he's talking to a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is the probably the best Bible teacher of that day. He knew the Old Testament backward and forward. His actual name wasn't Nicodemus. Nicodemus literally means a ruler of the people. And so he was probably this was a title for the number one Old Testament teacher in Israel. And so Nicodemus, who knows the Old Testament better than any other Pharisee in the first century, comes to Jesus because he's heard of the miracles Jesus performed, and he says, well, what's going on here? And Jesus explains a few things to him, and Nicodemus just isn't catching on. Maybe you've had this experience. You're trying to explain Christianity to someone, and they just have a hard time grasping it. And when the conversation is nearing its end, Jesus makes a profound statement. He says in verse 12, he says in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
Now, this is a profound statement. Let me put this up here in form of a chart. We're going to put these two lines up here, and they represent the uh, x-axis and y-axis on a graph. Now, I know I'm immediately lost, half of you, but I've tried to make this really simple. The axis on the left represents space. That is the dimensions of space, height, width. And the and it goes from smaller to larger. At the bottom, we have the smallest thing we can perceive, even with the aid of instruments, down to a uh, smallest particle in an atom. And then the largest thing that we could perceive would be the existence of a galaxy or other galaxies out into space. The bottom line represents time. And over the course of time, we can observe with the aid of instruments down to what takes place in a nanosecond through the use of time-lapse photography. At the other end of the spectrum, we have historical observations. They may not be our initial eyewitness, but there are those who lived 100, 500, 1,000, 2,000 years ago and wrote down their accounts of what went on, and that represents the, the fullest extent of direct human observation. Okay, so on the... On the left side going up, we have space. This goes from the smallest level of human observation to the largest. And that, that sets the boundaries for what we can empirically observe. And time represents the smallest, which is somewhere down close to a nanosecond. And then the largest is what goes back through historical eyewitness. So these are the boundaries. When we get beyond these lines... We can't have any direct observation anymore. We don't know what goes on there. When we go beyond historical observation, we really don't know what went on because there's no direct eyewitness account. Now, if we look at the vertical, the smallest thing that we can observe with the aid of a microscope may be down to the level of a molecule or submolecular level. And the largest thing that we can observe would be a galaxy out into space. We can't go beyond that. We can't see what's beyond space. So that provides limitations. See, this is the same box that boxed in Plato with his rationalism and the same box that boxed in Aristotle with his empiricism. That human knowledge is limited. It can only go so far. When we get outside that box, we're dealing with deductions and conjecture. It's just pure guesswork. Unless there is an eyewitness who comes from outside the box into the box, we can't know for certain what's outside the box. This is what Jesus is saying in John 3:12 and 13. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things. No one has ascended to heaven. No human being has gone outside the box to tell you what's out there. But he who came down from heaven, that's Jesus, he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. See, what Jesus is saying is that he is the one who is the incarnate revealer of God. And so he has come from heaven into the box of human limitations so that he can accurately tell man who he is, what his purpose is, 
what his meaning is, what his destiny is, how to have a relationship with God, why there's evil and suffering in the world, and that there ultimately is a resolution to the problem of evil and suffering in the world. So Jesus is the one, therefore, who says, I am the way because I am the one who tells you how to get to God. I am the truth. What I'm saying is conforms to the reality of God's existence and how to get there. And I am the life because only when you have that relationship with God do you have life. Now, that's the subject of his conversation with Nicodemus. And this conversation begins in the first verse of that third chapter. Nicodemus came to uh, Jesus at night. It could be that he was didn't really want anybody to know that he was coming to Jesus at night, but Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews as the most popular Bible teacher of his time, was probably very busy during the day, and so he didn't have any other time that he could come to Jesus. And he came to Jesus at night and said to him in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. See, he really doesn't know what to start. He just says you perform miracles, you turn the water into wine, which is an act of creation indicating that you're the creator. But he said, this doesn't fit my paradigm. This, this doesn't fit my understanding of reality. See, I've been taught all my life, Nicodemus is thinking, that to get to God you have to do works. And now you come along and you're teaching something different from that and you're backing it up with these miraculous displays and I'm totally confused. Because all my life I've heard that the only way to have a relationship with God is through ritual, through ethics, through morality, and now you're saying something different. What's going on here? See, this is a problem that so many people face is that they've tried to find truth in philosophy and it's bankrupt. They've tried to find some kind of truth in, in religious, religion, uh, ethics, morality, ritual, but it doesn't get you anywhere because none of those systems deal with the basic problem. And the basic problem is what Jesus is going to point out here, and that is it's a problem of man's condition. He says to Nicodemus in verse 3, he says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you are born again... You cannot see the kingdom of God. See, the problem, he's saying to Nicodemus, is a problem of birth. You were born physically alive, but you were born spiritually dead. Every single human being since Adam's sin comes into the world spiritually dead. He can't have a relationship with God. He can't truly know God. He can't do anything that pleases God. He can do good works, but... On a relative scale, they're, they're only good because they're better than somebody else. But the Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we're all under condemnation. The Bible says that all of our works of righteousness, not our works of unrighteousness, but our works of righteousness are as filthy rags in God's sight. The best that you can do is garbage in God's sight. You just make it clear. And so God is saying that if you, Jesus is saying that if you're going to have to have a relationship with God, you can't get there through philosophy. You can't get there through ethical obedience. You can't get there through ritual because that doesn't solve the problem of spiritual death. 
The only thing that solves the problem of spiritual death is if you are born. Again, there's got to be a new birth. You're physically alive, but you're spiritually dead. There has to be a birth that gives birth to this new spirit. And how do you get there? Well, Nicodemus is scratching himself. He's thinking too physically, and he says in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Well, see, he can't. And so Jesus said in verse 5, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And the emphasis in verse 6 is that there is a flesh birth, that's physical birth, and there is a spiritual birth, and that is what happens when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. This left Nicodemus confused, and that's why Jesus comes to that statement that we've studied already, that if I speak to you of earthly things, like the physical birth, and you don't understand me, how will you understand me when I speak to you of heavenly things? And then he makes the issue clear in verse 14. It says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now this is a reference to an incident that happened to the Jews when they were on their way from Egypt to the Promised Land. And there was, they had disobeyed God, and God disciplined them by sending a, a bunch of serpents that bit with a fiery, fatal sting. And Jews began to drop left and right because of this bite from these venomous vipers. And when they turned to God finally, God said, okay, here's the solution you fabricate, you fashion a bronze serpent, you put it on a pole and hold it up, and if people are bitten and they need to be delivered, all they have to do is look at the serpent. See, they don't have to improve their life, they don't have to go through ritual, they don't have to, to uh, uh, go through seven steps or eight steps, they don't have to uh, contemplate their navel, they don't have to go through various temple rituals, all they have to do is look at the serpent the bronze serpent, and they'll be saved. Because to look there is an act of faith, that you are trusting in what I have said, and you'll be saved. And so Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, what the Bible claims is that the only way to God is to put your faith in Christ, to trust in Him alone. It's not a matter of your personal morality, your failures, your successes, your personality, ritual, anything else. It is a matter of simply trusting in Jesus Christ alone because it's His righteousness that saves you, not your righteousness. It is never our righteousness. It is a gift of God. And this leads to one of the most famous verses of all of the Bible, For God so loved the world. That's every individual in the world. This salvation is available for each and every person. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, His unique, one-of-a-kind Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, He says again, but have everlasting life. And then in verse 18, He goes on to say, He who believes in Him is not condemned. See, what's the issue? It's not works, it's not morality, it's not ritual, it's not religion. It's belief. 
And the question is that if you're going to build your life on something, what is it being built on? Is it being built on some philosophy that works for you? Is it being built on some religious system that that makes you feel good, that seems to work for you, that seems to sort of take the edges off of life because by going through various rituals, going through various uh, activities, somehow it makes you feel more acceptable to God. But the Bible says that all of this is like shifting sand. It's an uncertain foundation, and it will collapse. Up in New England where I lived, there's a phenomenon of covered bridges. And you can go to a lot of -of out-of-the-way places in rural New England, and you find these various wooden covered bridges that are a century or two old. And when those bridges were built, they were quite valuable, and they carried traffic and commerce and wagons from one side of the river to another. They worked for a while. You see, if you tried to take an 18-wheeler, a big semi, across one of those bridges, it would go right in the water. See, this is a perfect illustration of all the different thought systems and religious systems in the world. They seem to work for time. They provide a measure of happiness and a sense of stability. But they can't really carry the load of the real issues in life. They can't answer the questions related to the existence of sin and evil and injustice and the future and the purpose for man and the meaning for man and the existence of man. They can't answer it. It falls apart eventually. Just as Platonism was bankrupt, Aristotelianism was bankrupt, the rationalism of Descartes is bankrupt, the empiricism of Locke is bankrupt, the the religious systems of the Jews were bankrupt, the religious systems of the world are bankrupt. The only solution is Jesus Christ. And the issue is, do you believe he died on the cross for your sins or not? Because Jesus made an exclusive statement. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how much ritual you've gone through, no one can come to the Father except through me. Now that sounds like a pretty arrogant statement. And for a lot of people, they just bristle when they hear anything about the Christian gospel because it claims that it's the only way. But you see, if you understand all of what the Bible says about Christianity, all of what the Bible says about God, all of what the Bible says about the sinful condition of man, then you understand that this is the only way that could ever work because it's not dependent upon a fallen, sinful, depraved creature. It's dependent solely upon God. And that's what we're going to look at next time. We're going to come back and we're going to look at this concept of truth and how God's truth has constantly invaded human history down through the centuries, yet man, because he is fundamentally oriented against God, consistently seeks to put his own spin on that truth and to change it. And so next time we're going to look at truth and how that truth has been revealed from Genesis to Revelation. We'll go through the whole Bible in 35 minutes. And we'll see this issue of truth and why it is so fundamental. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our Father, we do thank you for this opportunity this evening to look at the issue of truth and to 
think about our own lives and what we're building our lives on. What is the, our philosophy of life? What is it that we're constructing the edifice of our lives upon? Are we building them on the rock of truth or just something that seems true for us right now? Scriptures make the issue very clear that we're all sinners. We have all violated God's standard. There's nothing that any of us can do that ever can meet God's standard. Everything that we do is flawed. But God, in His love for each one of us, sent His Son to die for us. He paid the penalty for us. So that by simply accepting that as a free gift, we can have eternal life. Scripture says it's not a matter of works. It's a matter of faith, trusting Christ. Right now, right where you sit, you have the opportunity to determine your eternal destiny. You can have certainty. You can be sure of where you are going by simply believing that Jesus died for you. You don't have to change your life. You don't have to uh, make a bargain with God. You don't have to go through any ritual. You just simply... Believe that Jesus died for you. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we've studied this evening, that we'd be challenged by them, that we can base our life on the eternal truth of the revealed Word and the living Word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.